This is episode two of a two-part episode. Postmodern geekdom as simulated ethnicity. cartoon white man that was in the um, article? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Okay. White man fascinated yes. uh, Robert Crumb's white man. And um, I also found mm-hmm. his follow-up, which I thought was also pretty good. It wasn't in your article, but I found two white man strips. And it was really fascinating to me because the very first episode of my podcast was exactly about the dynamics described in white man. And you guys break it down so well. I, I want you guys to discuss the comic strip. Uh, oh, this sounds White like Man, it's going to be and well, how it, um, what it says and how it relates to uh, to the depiction of the idea that African Americans are carefree and not tortured by their identity. Um, so that it ironically privileges the the white male experience as being full of anxiety as they are you know persecuted by ideas of guilt or fear or their status in society and i mean crumb crumb is possibly just being very confessional we always have to acknowledge that and and portraying a caricature of um of uh, his own his own conceits, but he does it so differently than when he's portraying his sexual um, uh, hang-ups and proclivities that you could make the case that it, it's a different take. It's not just psychodrama, but it is just straight melodrama, and he's portraying uh, yeah the, these conceits about what what their the anxiety of of being in a multicultural society when you had previously occupied um a dominant position that was not being interrogated or you weren't made to feel guilty or you weren't confronted with political correctness yeah when you when you read white man and um i'll give a very quick summary of the um strip it's basically this guy his actual name is white man and 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 uh, th- does he have a first name? I can't even remember. I, ju- I just remember um, <laughs> he's called. His, they just call him White Man, I think. But uh, I think so. I can try to look it up. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. But like, everywhere he uh, goes, he's uptight about sex. He's uptight about rules. He's uptight about fitting in. And then he makes a mistake mm-hmm. of wandering into the ghetto, and then these uh, black guys are um walking around and he's just deathly like afraid but they're not even really doing anything they're just having they're just enjoying themselves they're having a good time and he's like get away how can you like like and what's interesting is they're very very stereotypical like they have huge lips they're jet black they're like minstrel characters all, all mm-hmm. of them 
And what's fascinating is they're just, all they're saying is stuff like, right. hey, there's a parade coming to town. You know, they're coming. And, and white man is just like freaking out. And one of the things that was interesting to me about it was white men seem to not be able to understand how they could be okay. It's like, you're black. I'm white. How can you manage to have less anxiety? How can you even navigate the world when you don't, you know, you should be even more miserable than, than I am. And I, I found that um, pretty interesting, the whole carefree thing, like the idea, whether they really are carefree or not, white man perceives them like, like the black men, the black people appear as what white middle class people perceive mm-hmm. black people to be, whether they really are that um, or not. But what was interesting to me was, did you guys um, ever read White Man uh, Meets Bigfoot? It was a follow-up one? Um, a long time ago. Uh, yeah. Did he Did he end up having sex with her? Yeah, yeah. White Man Meets yeah. Bigfoot is when um, White Man meets... Uh, Bigfoot, but Bigfoot in this case represents kind of like the black or ethnic woman. So, mm-hmm. so now white man, mm-hmm. white man goes through yeah. all his um, self-discovery yes. through sex with the um, um, I guess I guess I guess black woman or, or ethnic woman. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what Bigfoot yeah. is. But it's yeah. kind of like one of the things is like he feels almost attracted to her against himself. He's like, oh my God, she's so disgusting. Why am I getting an erection? You know, and then he kind of has sex with her. Then he rediscovers his primal side and he falls in love with her. And it's kind of a rebellion against society. And through his um, time with her, he kind of rejects societal mores. He even returns to society only to break free and run away with uh, her. And he kind of goes native. In the final panel, he's in tattered clothes. His hair is long. And I discovered uh, it through your article. After I read your article, I discovered the um, white man piece. And then when I Googled the full uh, strip, I found a white man with um, Bigfoot. So the two white men strips kind of cover how the white middle class anxious male uh, sees black men, you know, carefree uh sexually uninhibited and then how he sees the black woman like kind of like this magical mythical um creature yes you know you know can kind of educate him and you know free him and the thing that struck me when i read these two things right have you guys heard of uh frank chin yes yes Mm -hmm. have you ever heard of his concept of racist love yes and i think he spoke of that at oregon the University of Oregon um, I know at one this point. Guy is. Yeah, he wrote Donald Duck. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a pretty interesting guy, but he's kind of like on the outside of, I guess, uh, Asian American literature because he's a little confrontational. Mm-hmm, well, exactly. Um, well put. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, yeah, and he's Go very ahead. confrontational to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. What's interesting with um, Frank Chin, the racist love concept, is he had this idea that every single type of white supremacy has a racist hate and a racist love so it's like yes uh, um a white racist might have his racist hate of asian people be fu manchu 
but his racist love of Asian men is uh, Charlie Chan and Number One Son. Like, like for every hated right. version, there's a love version. Like, like the white conservative might hate um, a certain type of black guy, but he loves his athletes that play for his favorite yes, team. That, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think for a, a certain type of bohemian white person uh, or liberal white person that is racist. They have their type of racist hate, but they also have their racist love. And I think white man by crumb really taps into that because um, I think a lot of white liberals, be they hippies or whatever, they kind of romanticize that carefree blackness. You kind of see it with the white intoxication with rock and roll, like how carefree you can be. Yes. And they also kind of romanticize um, black women as being uh this kind of magical thing like like he literally makes the black woman magic as far as making her into this mythical creature this bigfoot yeah and, mm-hmm. and this is a convoluted way to getting to this question but with being a minority geek right one of the premises i have is that being a minority geek you kind of start internalizing a lot of the same middle class status anxieties as white people you know like uh, sure. if you're black and you're middle class to a degree you could put a black middle class person into the white man's strip and it could almost play exactly the same you know like like when i look at Issa ray in, in uh insecure and her like rapping in the mirror or play acting as um yes. a care a carefree ghetto person you can kind of um see that same dynamic at play keegan michael you know? key plays a character like that in keanu the one with the cat mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't see that one. Oh, movie, well, like, Keegan-Michael Key plays a very like uptight, joke, you know, middle-class um, black guy. You could also guy, say so that buddy, those are geeks played by Jordan play Peele. Up, always giving him a hard um, time about that. I don't know if he what they actually tells him he's white, but he... Hold on. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, D, are you able to hear uh, Carter? Because you're talking at the same time. I was wondering... No, I, I can't. I can't. Let me... Oh, uh, oh. Oh, he can't, he can't hear you, Carter. That's why he's talking at the same time. Okay. Um... Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Can you can you um repeat your point and I'll try to get uh uh D cleared up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um just that um you were saying that there is a certain type of kind of like middle class person of color, middle class black person you can almost plug into the standard narrative that might normally be in inha- or more commonly inhabited by a white middle class person. And I, I was just pointing out that in the film Keanu, they kind of get some comedy out of that because Keegan Michael Key plays one of these kind of uptight middle class uh, black people. And then his friend who's played by Jordan Peele kind of gives him a hard time about how uptight he is. And I, I don't know if he kind of says you're acting like a white person or not, but that's the implication. And then they have to infiltrate a more stereotypically coded um, ethnic gang in order to get their cat back. And so the whole joke of the movie is Keegan-Michael Key trying to learn how to play to this stereotypical version of a tough, you know, black gang member. And all of it's kind of caricatured, obviously, but... um, (laughs) <laughs> but it just kind of gets to that point that these are ways of behaving or performing an identity. They're culturally coded and that class plays a role in it. I mean, n- not that a black middle class person couldn't be discriminated against or 
profiled by a cop. But in terms of that internal mentality, I think you're right that there's something going on with class in there. Yeah, D, are you okay now? Are you can you hear Carter okay and the rest of us? Yeah, I heard cool. the tail end of I heard the tail end of what he said. Was he speaking of that movie? Um, Keanu. Keanu. Yeah, I actually my wife dragged me to the theater to watch yes. that, so I, I'm fully <laughs> acquainted with what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, he was saying how uh, Keegan Michael Key's character was kind of like Crumb's uh, white man, and and I made a note when I was when I was reading. Uh, white man i was thinking what happens when white man is a black man mm-hmm. yeah yeah because uh i think there's a i think there's a lot of that in uh in Issa ray's uh work insecure there's a lot of uh uh class and sexual slumming which still kind of equates with class slumming you know where she has, she's always rapping in the mirror and doing a ratchet voice but she's also like having episodes where she's going through a quote-unquote whole phase and she always wow. does her whole face voice in a stereotypical kind of uh, ghetto voice. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something interesting because she's is also very coded with, with geekiness. Like she, her, her um, rise to fame was a web series called Awkward Black Girl. And it was all about how black people can be geeks, too. And she makes wow, this explicit yeah. in her interviews when she talks about what her um kind of mission statement is with with her work so i I was wanting to ask you guys about how you think um race intersects with this simulated ethnicity do you want Uh, trying to think of (laughs) you have an answer right off the bat i i could say Well, I have one thing I can add. I don't know if it directly Mm -hmm. answers that question because it's something I wrestle with myself and I don't know if I really know the answer, but I'm like groping my way toward one or something. But one thing that I've noticed a lot in white geek culture is a tendency to want to, as we've kind of been hinting at, appropriate these usually stereotypical ideas of what it means to, to not be white. So just as Issa Rae can like slum with respect to class or sexuality, there's a lot of white geek narratives where the white geek sort of, sort of has a fantasy time where they become like kind of inhabiting a, a black identity of sorts. I'm thinking of um, Road Trip. One of the geeks in Road Trip they go to an all black fraternity and he ends up like dancing on stage and he's like, everybody loves the way he dances to run DMC (laughs) music. And then he ends up hooking up with a a black woman. It's this same idea that, you know what I mean? Like white geeks, because they are privileged, they can like slum their way into having this coded black experience. But it's, we have to note it's a projection of what white culture or white geeks think blackness is. Exactly, exactly. That's the thing they're fascinated with. Yes, yes. I don't know if that answers your yeah, question. It's like the opposite or the flip side of your question. But. No, but it's amazing that you brought up Road Trip because I was thinking of that exact scene <laughs> that you just talked about. Oh, that's great, yeah. <laughs> that you know what's so great crazy. about that example is yeah. that that example combines both Roger Crumb white man strips in one vignette like because first he breaks free oh. into the carefreeness which is in the yes. first white man strip 
And then when right. he hooks up with that with that uh, black woman, that's the <laughs> white man meets Bigfoot strip because she sure is. she's built similar <laughs> to Crumb's Bigfoot. Yeah, big yeah, yeah. She, she's built very similar to Crumb's um, that's right. Bigfoot. So you're right. It taps into those type of anxieties and projections. That's why I love that uh, that Crumb strip so much because it still resonates on uh, today. It's still it's still happening. Yeah, you're yeah, you're, yeah right. You're, you know, I think I do remember reading that. It was a while back, though. I'm gonna have to go and, and take another look at it. Yeah, I'm going to put it in the show notes so that people listening can uh, find it themselves. Uh, something else that I found interesting about racist love is I feel like when you're a geek, right? Because I'll say this for myself: when I was growing up and I used to watch those old Tarzan movies, I used to have the the repeats of them, and you watch Tarzan. Um, interacting with the natives and everything. When you're like a black kid watching that, your first thought is you're identifying mm-hmm. with Tarzan as the hero. Yeah. Right. You, know, you don't think of yourself as the natives, like, you know, but on some level, you kind of notice that to a degree, the natives might be you. Like, like you, know what I, you know what I'm saying? Like, but yes. it's a good example of how if you don't consciously think about it, it's very easy to just internalize those narratives. So after like say 10 years of absorbing geek culture, you kind of really get in tune to both the racist hate image of your culture and the racist love image of your culture. Cause you know, like Tarzan or the Phantom might have a black sidekick that they like <laughs> that runs with them. And as a black person, you kind of really, yes. you know, is that me? Is that who I should be? And what I'm getting at is I notice a lot of these blurs. There's these two things that they love celebrating. One is carefree black boys, right? Uh, if you ever see the hashtag, right. they always have carefree black boys. And then another thing is wow. black hmm. girl magic. And when you keep hearing those things, and then you look at the crumb strips, and the first thing is all about these carefree black guys, and the second one is about a magic black woman, you kind of realize that a lot of this kind of woke blurred culture is a reappropriation mm-hmm. reclaiming of wow. fucked up white stereotypes that, that they yes. to kind of weaponize and say like, you know, if we're going to be mm-hmm. this, let's be it on our terms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that is interesting. There's so many things that intersect. Yeah. No, man. no, I'm, 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 I'm asking to be challenged on it. Cause I don't know. Do you think that's a fair yeah, um, I think it's fair. Um, when I was when you originally asked the question, I was thinking that it might be that geeks of color and black geeks might not be able to participate fully or per- fully enjoy the geek identity because of all the low key racism that's and 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 non low key racism. But but your example shows that. A lot can be pushed aside, and I guess maybe similarly to the to the white female geeks who who in my class really were resistant to any kind of critique of geek culture. Um, yeah, in that in that way, there may be some similarities. Though uh, these blurs, they still must be jarred out of it occasionally when when white geeks or geek media does racist stuff. Is that possible? I think I think that. Um... One of the observations that I've made, and you guys may or may not agree, um, is I noticed that 
the women and the men in the blurred society, they kind of react differently to uh, when issues of race come up. Um, the men seem to almost try, and I'm, I'm generalizing, the men almost treat it as if it's a, it's a minor annoyance that they, oh, I have to address this, you know, once again. Whereas the women, um, they kind of wear it as um, a sort of victim's badge of honor, so to speak, because they like to bring it up, you know, whenever the moment presents itself, it's an opportunity for them to do it. So they say, oh, yeah, I'm a black person. You did this. You know, I want to see this black woman be with this main white character. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine about that. But then when something, you know, uh, controversial happens, they're quick to address it only as it relates to their place within uh, overall geek culture. So what I'm saying is the women tend to be more, um, for lack of a better term, sensitive to it, but only in that it affects the area that they're comfortable in being, whereas the men tend to kind of treat it more like it's a minor annoyance that comes up from time to time that they have to deal with. That's just my observation of it, because I remember, I'm going to give you this really quick example. Um, not too long ago, there was a controversy that popped up with um, a, a somewhat well-known um, female YouTuber, and um, she came out with this video talking about, um, basically, it was race. Uh, um, I'm, I'm having a brain freeze right now. Forgive me, guys. Um, basically, um, talking about race you know, black people being genetically inferior. I forget what the term for it is right now for some reason. I don't know why, but um, so she came out with this video and she started talking about all these statistics and, you know, what was going on in Africa prior to colonialism and, you know, all the traditional stuff that these, these, uh, these people do. And then there was a couple of black guys that were in their circles. And I noticed that, you know, the way that they reacted to that controversy was kind of like, oh, man, why does she have to go and do that? Now we're going to have to address it. But it was kind of a half-hearted um, reaction to what was being said. I don't know if you guys remember what oh, I was oh, so, so, so you mean about. the black guys were more annoyed that she was bringing up all this stuff? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's what it seemed to me, as they were just kind of more annoyed by it as opposed to being genuinely offended by it in the way that you would with any racist. Yeah. You know? That's just how I how I look at it, but you know, I could be wrong. And do you think that had to do with the gender dynamics at play there because it, it was a female YouTuber bringing it up possibly? Would that make a difference? You know, it could be. I didn't think about that, but it could be the gender dynamics that come into play. I don't I don't know. But I know that one of them, she did have a close relationship with, with one of the guys, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So he felt kind of more of a I mean, betrayal mm -hmm. that, she, that she would start talking about those issues. Oh, I right. see. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to steer us too I far from race, but I, I'm always aware that gender is lurking in there, right? And geek culture... I've noticed, despite the fact that there's a lot of female participation in geek culture, uh, I, I think misogyny is really alive and well in geek culture. So it, I think it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think we all know that. So, so I don't know. That's what I wonder when you tell that story. And there's kind of a hostility. There's kind of a hostility to women too, because one thing I noticed, right, 
is uh there was this guy he's a comic book artist tony harris he had this rant on uh youtube but he was mad at the pretty the conventionally pretty hot girl uh-huh. who, who who he thought know nothing about um Greek culture who are now infiltrating the um mm-hmm. the comic book conventions and cosplaying in these really hot outfits right and he was very <laughs> mad that you're like okay you guys were the ones who never gave us a shot mm-hmm. growing mm-hmm. up or whatever and now you got he kind of made it seem like they were showing up as cosplayers just to torture the right. kids more right right I mean the the other the other way to read that story though now that I'm thinking of it is maybe the <laughs> blurds don't want race being so explicitly addressed because they want to fit in in geek culture so they they don't like it that she's calling attention to this racism issue cuz it is that sort of what, what what it could be it could be because I I think, I, right I think that the, I think you are because I think the women the the, the black female blurds uh, the word I was looking for was they wear intersectionality as a badge of honor. So that, that's the term I was looking ah, for. Yes. Whereas the guys, um, I don't know what their personal motivations are. I just know that they seem to react to any type of racial controversy um, a little bit differently than the female blurs do. So that was what I was trying to get at. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll say this. I'll say this because I think I know the phenomenon you're talking about. And one thing I will say, I notice this a lot. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a certain type of black guy, right? There's a certain type of black guy that I notice. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. you can see it like a Pharrell type, a Tyler the Creator type, <laughs> uh, ASAP Rocky type. Yes. That kind of likes hanging out with the non-PC white guy, the um, <sighs> the the... the skater type you know that that kind of type and they feel like if if i hang out with these guys i can kind of get by by just being part of this everyone equal opportunity offense culture it's kind of a (laughs) nice way of saying that yeah if i could immerse myself in this equal opportunity offense culture now i'm preemptively inoculated very well any type of racism because we've set the ground rules that everybody's fair game so but then i think what happens point. a lot of That's times great, is yeah. these guys can only take it that far yes. I mean, to a certain degree because sooner or later it backfires and i'll give you a good example like title the creator was kind of like you know positioning himself like a black mm-hmm. juggalo or a black uh eminem you know oh i'm going to rap about rape i'm going to rap about all this stuff right but then <laughs> he tried to go to england and england blocked him they banned him oh. from the country. Wow. And then he got really upset because he's like, you could tell that he came close to getting woke, but he couldn't let himself take that final step. But he's like, he was doing rants on uh, social media and stuff, but saying, why can Eminem rap about this stuff for like decades? And he doesn't get banned from right. this country. But, you know, I'm getting banned, mm. but he's too pot committed at this point. He can't change the game now. He's right. committed to this uh, to this kind of black skate type equal wow. opportunity offense uh, adult swim yeah. kind of thing and I think that's probably what's happening with a lot of those people in that comment section that you're mentioning D like they found their place of comfort maybe they get sexual access to some some white female geeks as well and they're happy with that 
you know, they don't want to rock the boat. Whereas Ooh. I think for the black women, because they don't have as yeah. comfortable a place yet in geek culture, they don't really have much to lose. <laughs> that, that's well said. The other thing that maybe I don't know if it's the case with this particular guy, mm-hmm. but sometimes the geek move is to really, uh, I'm going to say, I guess, pretend to maybe that's unfair or adhere to. That's probably better. For geeks to adhere to a very, at least seemingly logical way of looking at the world, everything's got to be cold hard facts. But ironically, this leads them to, I think, sometimes get into some real traps when it comes to identity. I'm thinking of especially like the post-racial dream. You know, a lot of geeks feel like, oh, well, if I'm just cool with everybody, then we must live in a post-racial world. And maybe that's more yes, a thing yes. white geeks do because they have the privilege to get away with it. But no, I think black male geeks try it. And I think <laughs> you're right on the money with that. I just think what happens is they kind of reach a point where they realize, wait a minute. Yeah. They're making fun of everyone the same, but they're making fun of me for something different than what they're making fun of themselves for. Like, you know, you kind of start yes. realizing that, that, wait a minute, everyone's being made fun of, but there's something different, you know, like, um, yeah, I I think well, right race is it. at play, you know? Yeah, exactly. For real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they can't and they can't uh they have a cognitive dissonance about that, Indeed. you know, realizing it's not quite working the way I want it um to work. But yeah, yeah, you're totally dead on about that uh post-racial thing cuz all those guys who are kind of embedded in geek culture have have said it. Like like and Donald Glover like has said similar things. Like wow. Tyler the Creator has said those things about, <laughs> right. you know, uh, it's a new culture. The ASAP Rocky people, uh, like that rap group, they're right. always talking about racism is over because we all have sex with white women. Like, you know, he really said that. That was a literal <laughs> Wow, goodness. That he said. Yeah, and then um, I missed that one. Yeah. Donald Glover had a stand up bit where he said, like, you know, it turns him on when he's you know, having sex with a white woman and she uses the N word, like, like wow. they kind of create this post-racial thing where everybody is mocking everybody, so it's got to be right. okay. But I think they always end up getting a wake-up call where they kind of hit a wall. Probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that goes along with what I've been observing in the alt-right and I think for them, they often do things that overlap with what subversive liberals used to do, but instead they read the dominant ideology as, as the hegemony. I mean, or no, sorry, they read political correctness as the hegemony. And that goes along with how the alt-right kind of was, or at least the, a lot of what pushed the current movement in the alt-right came out of 4chan and Reddit. And the thing about that is only... Only white geeks can fully participate in this type of subversiveness or this type of shirking of political correctness and treating it as if they're, they're the dominant ideology that needs to be, you know, uh, fought off with the carnival-esque or their ironic poses that they take. And that's an attractive prose because when you start reading it that way, being a geek is subversive even if you're pushing up against feminism or political correctness. So it's attractive to geeks of color. But then, like you say, they hit that wall when they when they try to when they when they realize that that shirking all of these these uh, societal expectations could actually be racist or problematic in ways that they can't 
uh, transgress as as people of color. You know, it's interesting. They're getting a higher tolerance to it too. Those type of black participants in it, and what I mean by that is, and I don't know if you guys have seen this. Have you guys seen the Twitter hoteps? It's like these uh, guys on Twitter who are kind of like black 4chan type guys, and they pretty much parrot a lot of the stuff that the white alt-right says, and they can take it to some pretty nasty uh, places. Disturbing. Yeah, so, yeah nasty yeah. places that, you know, uh, D and I always wonder, like, what limits do these guys have? Like, like they will uh, excuse police shootings of... Um, of black people, they'll use, yeah, they'll use alt right slurs about black people, like like they'll call black people shines and akatas and Hindu. Wow. But uh, Hindus. you say they're doing this in order to sort of ironically send up that right. position? No, they're participating. In it. They, they are kind of they're kind of participating in um they're kind of participating in bashing political. It's kind uh, of like yes. Know, Super extreme version of what I described about uh, equal offense yes. culture, mm. but they seem to be doing it with they don't without hit a limit. All. Like you know, I'm used to seeing people kind of hit a wall, but they realize, oh wait, this is not bad. But these people, I've seen them appear on like on like Jim Gold show. You know, Jim Gold, the white the white nationalists. Oh my god, I've heard of them. They, yeah, they'll appear on Jim Gold's show. One of them ap- appeared on both Jim Gold and Gavin McInnes' mm-hmm. show as a guest. And not to challenge him, but, you know, kind of like to, to complain about white liberals right. and peace and culture. He mas- like, like, they mask it as, oh, it's um, black empowerment. We don't want to be um, told that whites are supreme against us. So any talk about white supremacy is actually a limiting belief. Like, as if Somehow, if you choose not to believe in white supremacy, it won't exist. Right, right. Well, part of what's motivating them is possibly that there is a, a void or a niche that they can fill. Because a lot of those alt-writers don't see themselves as overtly racist. So if you're willing to parrot them, you, you, you'll get an audience. I mean, that, is that what motivates Omarosa, possibly, um, in Trump's uh, administration? So... Um, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I could see that, especially if you're, if you're coming at it from the idea of what are some good moves you, that you can make for yourself or your, your subculture. Um, yeah. Cause now that I think of it, I have met some people of color who are pretty on board with Gavin McInnes. They always shock me to the point where I, I, I don't really, um, ponder it too much, but yeah, they, they exist definitely. Yeah, I've given up trying to figure them out because I just, I mean, I mean, it must be just a sheer mercenary <laughs> thing, but I just always wonder to what degree do they uh, believe it? And I also wonder <laughs> what's worse. Is it worse if they believe it and they just get <laughs> deluded or that they actually don't believe it and they're so willing to get that <laughs> uh, pittance? Because it isn't like they make a ton of money. Like, are they right, that right. desperate for attention that they're willing to just pretend they believe right. it i'm not sure what's worse i think they do believe it now that i think about it i think that they just they're able to adopt the same false consciousness that is motivating these alt writers and it's kind of amazing but it probably pays off not in money but in terms of self-image because when you can adopt 
the dominant ideology, you feel a lot happier with yourself. You know, I think a lot of the dominant ideology right now is just marketing to people to feel happy about situations that are not good, especially if you're middle to lower class. Um, then, then the mainstream culture is trying to make you find a way of being at peace with some of the messed up things that are happening um, right now. I want to one thing interesting, like like uh, I've called that fat cat Stockholm yeah. syndrome. Like I feel <laughs> like that's what yeah. that's what the culture is trying to push on you. you know, kind of like this cult of Steve Jobs, for example. Like how people kind of like root for him so whimsically. Like you know, he's like a Robin Hood type figure. It's very weird. Or Batman, who's mm-hmm. also a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I was mm-hmm. I was a billionaire. They, they of course. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been he's, he's been he's been adjusted for inflation. <laughs> funny, but but like like what like what's really interesting to me about about all that um, kind of uh, fat cat Stockholm syndrome is people really feel comfortable there. Like you know, you, you can kind of see the enticement of it and france fanon uh france fanon was a psychiatrist and what was interesting is we had a guest who was an expert on france fanon and one of the things that he mentioned to us is that france fanon had a problem in his job as a psychiatrist because he had to treat a lot of times colonized people and the definition of his job was to make them fit into society so his conflict became to make them quote unquote mentally healthy, I have to make them find peace in the world mm-hmm. of white supremacy. But he's like, if right. the society is insane or corrupt, yes, uh, their their reaction is actually the mm-hmm. same reaction. They're supposed to That's be right. right. They're supposed to be anxious. They're supposed to be um, nervous, mm-hmm. neurotic, self hating wrecks. If I make them feel happy with themselves in the society. Am I doing them a service or a disservice? And that's what kind of drove him out of uh, doing psychiatry for the uh, establishment. Even though he did it to kind of help colonize people, he realized he couldn't do it within the system because the system was was rigged. And what I wanted to get at with that is these blurs I noticed kind of have that um, conflict too. Because I noticed like these blurs they will uh, kind of talk a lot as anti-racism or whatever, but their solutions for everything is always quote-unquote representation, which is like, you know, let's yes. get a black Superman. How about a Hispanic um, <laughs> Green Lantern? Let's, um, right. get, let's get this in. Like, they don't talk about, hey, let's get some more minority creator-owned um, comics. Right. Actual minority-centered narratives that aren't just white male geek narratives in in brown face or black face or applied to women. You know what I mean? Um, yes. You know, they don't really uh, think that way. And I kind of want to know if you guys had any thoughts about that, about um, buying mm-hmm. into the system, like changing the system from the inside and whether that works for marginalized people i think your reading is correct and uh, the application of fanon works i i use fanon in some of my research as well uh, in particular black skin white masks and uh, on an individual level buying in like you're describing does help you and perhaps i just i already said that um but you know ben carson comes to mind as well 
you know, somebody who's supremely successful because he's not tortured, but he, he, he might be read effectively as somebody who, if Franz Fanon decided to do what he said, um, what he did not want to do, which is to make people feel okay with being in an oppressive society, um, the, might that person look a bit like Ben Carson and be highly effective and, and not so tortured, but perhaps be holding in a lot of, you know, strange mental gymnastics that make it possible to, to behave that way. So, yeah, I think uh, black, black geeks, um, especially if they work in geek-centric organizations like tech, it's going to be a lot easier for them not to, not to think about certain things. And perhaps only areas like, you know, uh, areas like academia might be a place where a black geek could explore culture where he's surrounded by white people who are with cultural training and critical theory. But in most other environments, they, they probably would, would suffer a lot. It also reminds me about how religion is a psychological uh, benefit to most people, right? And perhaps, or perhaps not religion may be a false consciousness of a form, but it gives you a lot of psychological strength if you participate in faith. Um, I wonder if buying into dominant ideologies and not trying to resist them similarly unburdens your mind in a way that makes you a more effective individual, if not effective at affecting change for society and progressing it. Yeah, I, I think it also depends on the form of religion because I feel like some religions do, even if it's the same religion, some forms of it might encourage a communal mindset and kind of reconnecting to your fellow person going back into the community and you know Definitely. trying to find social mm -hmm. interest whereas some yeah whereas whereas some mm -hmm. might just be like joel austin like you know it's it's driver bootstraps capitalist talk just right. disguised as um, <laughs> right you know no very, no, very yes. individualistic mm -hmm. i mean uh, uh, uh d d might want to weigh in on this because i know uh you have thoughts on on religion Actually, D, are you uh, there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I was just uh, reading something in the article. No, uh, I don't. I don't have anything to, to, to add to that. You know. Uh, I want to add. I want to add the right track. I want to build off one thing that you mentioned with tech. Uh, I think tech is a great example because that's something where privilege really helps you a lot. It's not easy to build a tech company if you don't have um, money to fall back on, mm -hmm. access to capital. Uh, you know, connections that can help you get things off the ground. So I think a lot of black people in tech are more likely to be workers than mm -hmm. Zuckerbergs. Mm. So it's especially behooves them to buy into the system and not try to, you know, reshape a paradigm because it's, it's not right. gonna be easy for them to just pull pull a Zuckerberg and and just create mm -hmm. a company or, or create an Airbnb. No, that's right. And that's true in Hollywood as well. You had mentioned representation and how blurds often get real fixated on notions of representation. Um, and of course, that's a, that's a tricky business there because, you know, on the one hand, do we watch films like Doctor Strange and just, you know, facepalm ourselves because a great actor like Chiwetel Ejiofor is being, you know, cast as this kind of magical Negro sidekick to Benedict Cumberbatch, who, you know, literally quits the business of being a wizard once 
old Cumberbatch is trained up. You know, once Doctor <laughs> yeah. Strange is on the job, we don't need a black wizard anymore. Off stage left for, with you, sir. So, you know, it's so blatantly racist. And yet I know like on your Blurreds uh, episode, you talk about how certain Blurreds really take those representations to heart. And, and like that would count as a positive thing for them. And I, again, I kind of want to ride both sides of the fence and I don't want to take that away from them. But on the other hand, dang, you know, we got to do better than this. We've got to do better than this. And sometimes my hope, sort of like what you conclude in that podcast, is that we got to have more non-white men behind the camera. We've got to get, I know Idris Elba is right now working on his first uh, directorial debut, a film called Yardy. And by God, I'm going to go see that thing because I want to support putting guys like him in the director's chair you know, and, and, and he, but then again, he's been able to kind of make that happen, like you say, because he's been playing in those damn Thor movies and getting big paychecks. So yeah. he's got that cachet in the business and he's got money now so he can do things like this. Here's so something. he's had to kind of play along, maybe strategically. Here's something that worries me. I'll be interested to see where he goes with that. Uh, because oftentimes, I, and I agree with you 100%. No, Sorry about that, T. I'll, I'll be real quick. Uh, one of the things that ends up happening a lot of times is we, we're happy when these people get behind the director's chair and, and get in the writer's room and start to put their stories out there. But sometimes what happens is um, they'll communicate the same yes, vision yes. as uh, yes. the dominant side. That's true, too. Can I please and, add to that? Because that's exactly yeah. where I was going, and I'm glad you said it. Because I have oh, okay. a specific example that's just that, um, exactly what you said. Um Milestone Comics in the '90s. I really liked Milestone. Right. Yeah, and I liked them. Yeah. But I recently read an article, and when I read it, it really made me reconsider the whole thing. And I was like, "Wow, this was not as progressive as I thought mm. it was." And what this article said was, it basically said, "Okay, this was just um, white superheroes in a uh, blackface, like, right?" And then um, the origin story happens. At a gang rumble, right? So, oh shit, that's where yeah. it happens. It happens at a gang rumble. But this is what was interesting. It says, um, "Okay, so now you have all these black people with superpowers. You know, it's created by black people. It's overseen by black people. But what do these black people do with the superpowers? The right. they either become just villains, and then the heroes that we root for are just people who are just throwing other black people in jail and keeping the prison industrial complex." going like they just assume the mission right. of white hegemony which is yes the system is right. right uh let's not all to get together and use these powers to fight white supremacy and do whatever let's just do it to perpetuate um the same thing so all they do is just throw up throw black bad black people into prison yes and then what's really interesting is the Superman of uh, Milestone, he was a guy called Icon, right? Mm -hmm. And Icon was somebody who was supposed to be so noble and heroic and like respectable. He was on Earth from slave times as a super heroic person and never once did he free the slaves. He actually just stays undercover as a slave and just sits through in the Civil War and waits Holy for freedom. Oh, and yeah. does all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so... He just keeps yeah. he just keeps passing himself off as his own descendants because he's immortal. 
So, so he passes himself off as the great great grandson. That's so horrible, man. Of his um, of his of his slave ancestor. So he basically just sat on the plantation, pretending to be a slave with super. He, he could destroy the whole. Thing. So even super heroic black men prefer being in slavery, apparently. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm so yeah. crazy to me. Is that, that that's a microcosm yeah, yeah, yeah. of oh reality, God. man? Because uh, yeah, I, there's you know, a book he, that he, um, there is a. Go ahead and finish your point, uh, uh, T. Oh, I'm gonna yeah, I want to yeah, look yeah. up the title yeah. of this book. Yeah, real quick. I was gonna finish. I was gonna, I was gonna finish the point, but this was something created by black people. It was created by a right. black man, Dwayne McDuffie, drawn by a black man. It was uh, <laughs> and, and it was very celebrated to this day. Like Dwayne McDuffie is held up as this right. Great progress for black people so that's kind of what i get where these saying where you don't really know once you toil in that environment long enough you don't know what you internalize by the time you do strike out on your own that's why get out surprised me so much because i just assumed that these guys who are biracial and worked within the hollywood system so long were just gonna do something way less progressive and when i saw that uh, Jordan Peele did something so subversive. I was like, wow. Uh, I agree. I'm very pro Get Out, though I do feel the ending pulled its punch mm. a little bit. And I, and I know there's the alternative ending, which I haven't seen yet, but I know goes the way I thought that ending I, was going to go. I almost kind of wish it would have went there. Just <laughs> I kind of do, too, just for yeah, just the sign of the times, perfect, you know? Uh, sign of the times in a way that, you know, it'll be a microcosm of real life. Uh-huh. But I want to go back on with, with T. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't know about that. I think if they would have put that alternative ending in there, uh, that would have killed the movie for me personally. But I, I think when I put that punch in, everyone would have hated it. Is, yeah. uh, where well, it is nice. Choked the shit out of the girl. You should have choked her to death. That's the part, that's the part that I didn't, that's the part that Lost it for me. Yeah. Oh, at the yeah. end when he when he showed mercy. Man, he should have. No, I thought. Well, for me, I thought that he was going to get shot yeah. and killed by the police. That, that was what I thought was going to happen. I did too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's exactly That's what, what I thought it, was going to happen too. Yeah. Um. By the by the way, I just want to take it aside to uh, introduce uh, Mike. He's another co-host. Uh. Hi. I I thought I thought you were enjoying us today, but he <laughs> I, was, here, so. I wasn't planning on it. I'm sorry. And I was just listening. You know, so I came in late, so I was just listening. You guys, I didn't, I didn't want to just jump in. But then when T brought up the yeah, the, yeah. the the great granddaddy slave <laughs> Superman, and that, <laughs> oh god, you know, I, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to uh, tell people who you were, so they didn't get confused. So that's all. There is a book um, to to kind of go into what we were discussing and, and how this stuff is a microcosm of reality. A lot of times, there's a book called "Locking Up Our Own" by James Foreman Jr. And in the book, he talks about how when black people got into positions to really affect change in the community, they actually just continued to perpetuate the same. Uh, crime and punishment system that that their white predecessors had set up. So they would lock up black people in droves, give them harsh printing sentences and et cetera. And he was talking about, well, why is this happening where you have black people in positions of power to affect real systemic change, but then they continue with the same um, types of punishment that uh, their predecessors did. So that's why, you know, I, I was just brought that book up because it's like a microcosm of what we discuss. Um, 
that happens, or actually it's what happens when you get these black riders a lot of times that you think, okay, yes, you know, this is a guy, he's got an opportunity, he's going to go in there, he's going to tell some stories, and they're really going to do some things to affect change in the system like Get Out did, but oftentimes they end up perpetuating, you know, uh, what's already being done, and it's harmful. Yes. Yeah, it's a, that's a good point. Like, um, you see with a lot of those guys, with a lot of the brothers making those web series on YouTube and whatnot, they still seem to fall back onto the street thug, mm-hmm. you know, money and violence type of, you know, things that we complain about. Like, oh, we're tired of playing the slave roles. We're tired of playing the, the, the gangster, the killer. But when we get behind the, you know, yeah. behind the camera and when we get behind, you know, in the in the writing rooms, we write those same kind of characters. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, we need to imagine our way out of those very yeah. narrow stereotypes, and and by we, that would mean <laughs> yeah. all of us. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm speaking as a white person, and and I think emphatically How white culture white? needs to imagine its way oh, out shit. of this. I am. <laughs> I sh- I'm sorry. I probably should have said that way earlier. I think. Yeah. Uh, I am. There's, there's. That wasn't meant to be a big surprise, but there it is. I'm just messing with yeah, you. Yeah, he's being facetious. I'm Asian, but you knew oh, okay. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I understand. I did not. <laughs> I thought you were white. I actually didn't catch that. I actually didn't catch that you being facetious. You actually got me with that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm the most gullible person in the world, so I believed you. Too yeah, uh, um, this is a great segue to a, a quote from um, your your article. I just want to read just a quick paragraph. It says, uh, uh, "The article keeps talking about how the geeks kind of pair themselves off in these narratives with slacker characters, and the slacker characters are kind of nonconformist. They don't care. Like Rorschach doesn't care what people think about him in Watchmen, whereas Night Owl does. You know." And and a night owl still wants a girlfriend or whatever. Rorschach has nothing to do except fixate on night owl. But you know, like how how uh, Luke Skywalker has Han Solo as kind of like the slacker, the rake, the rogue. But yes. how a common theme in all this stuff is that the rogue or the rake or the slacker kind of to a degree either gets redeemed or or in the case of Rorschach uh, killed. Like 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 he he won't come into he won't fall in line with society and the rules, so he gets kind of killed. Uh, Han Han Solo becomes right. like neutered, becomes finds he has a heart of gold, settles down, so he gets redeemed. He gets to live, and this is the paragraph about that, that you guys have. You said the main characteristic that differentiates the geek from his slacker counterpart is that geeks can quote unquote sell out and become students, nine to five workers filmmakers and or cultural tastemakers because and this is the part that jumped out at me they never truly resist the system in the first place geeks are good workers and social conformists who respond to social marginalization by working harder and becoming creative as a prolific screenwriter and creator kevin smith is himself such a geek as are most of his film's protagonists thus extra filmically Geeks play a key role, perhaps the key role, in the production of the rise of the slacker phenomenon. In a, gl- in a globalized capitalist system, if something rises, it is because it makes money. And the key filmmakers of slacker cinema, Smith, Richard Linklater, Jim Jarmusch, 
and most recently Judd Apatow, are highly productive and market-savvy geeks who surround themselves and fill their cinematic narratives with groups of male slackers. So like, what I like about that paragraph, it talks about how even though these people are perpetuating this kind of slacker cinema, the people behind it are actually geeks, not slackers. They're conformists. They follow the rules. They know how to market. They know how to market themselves. They know how to fit in. They know how to play the game. They are not actual slackers um, themselves. But the never truly resist in the first place part is what really fascinates me here because it makes you think of the blurs in media that I was talking about before because a lot of these blurs, they will kind of push a lot of um, Malcolm X narratives. They'll push a lot of... um, France Fanon or other radical or nonconformist stuff, but at the end of the day, they're geeks. They're just advocating for representation in their position of power. They just want Oscars. Yes. They just want to play the game. They just want to um, not resist the system, but find a place for themselves um, in it. Yeah. Which I think ties into the, our point about milestone, about people form getting a chance to be in yes. charge. So. I thought that's that's pretty interesting. I want you to uh, both build on that, but also tie into something in the article that I loved. This is my last question. Uh, As opposed to what a lot of people do, including myself, I tend to think that all this stuff started with Joss Whedon, J.J. Abrams, Tarantino, whatever. You guys make a strong case that a lot of this started with Lucas and Spielberg and that they're the real culprits uh, here. So... Yeah, yeah. I, I it, it was it was a convincing case. It convinced me. So, you know, if you guys could end with um that point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me I can take the Lucas Spielberg part and then I'll hand it off to you. Yeah. I wouldn't want to say Lucas and Spielberg are the only or, or you know, the originators, but part of the reason I focus on them or we focus on them is because they do wield a, a huge amount of cultural power. The, the films they made, particularly during the 80s, the Star Wars stuff, the stuff where Richard Dreyfus is the protagonist, um, you know, even Indiana Jones He's kind of like both a geek and a slacker, kind of squished into one guy. Mostly, he's more the rakish slacker, but we do get those scenes of him in the classroom. And he has all this knowledge, you know. He's like a slacker with a a geek uploaded into his brain or something. And he knows everything about ancient languages and cultures. So, I give them a certain precedence just because they were so influential during that decade. And then they influenced those other guys. I mean, J.J. Abrams, if you gave him a machine and said he could turn into Steven Spielberg, he, w- he would take it. Um, you know, or or Kevin Smith has never hidden his influences either, and it's those guys. Um, I mean, he, Tarantino is a little more of a old exploitation movie geek. But like Spielberg and Lucas, the thing that differentiates all these guys and might be another defining characteristic of the geek is that their perception of reality is largely forged by media. I mean, all of, a, all, all of our points of view are, but, but geeks really embrace yeah, that. They're kind, of, they're kind right? of a copy of a copy. Like, it, like, like if old films were a kind of 
made by observing real life. Right. What they're doing is making films based on observing films that observed real life. Yeah. Right. You got it. So that's why I think they're important figures, but I wouldn't say they're the only ones. I think this evolution is complex and happened in a lot of places. I mean, you mentioned Steve Jobs earlier, Steve Jobs and to some extent, Bill Gates, but more Steve Jobs kind of made geekiness popular as well. Yes, yes. And kind of made the geek kind of seem like um, a slacker because some people kind of think of like Steve Jobs as just yes. kind of slacker to Bill Gates geek. Right. And it's like, no, they're both uh, strivers. They're both people who follow the rules. They're both part of the system. But it is interesting how they kind of uh, juxtaposed um, Steve Jobs against Bill Gates in the broader narrative. It kind of shows how coded these... Um, paradigms are in modern Big uh, time. culture you described this description of spielberg and lucas i thought was great you said um as opposed to deconstructing genre like the 70s artists these guys are doing the reverse and gentrifying discredited <laughs> genres of the past that, that every studio movie became a b movie with a budget which, which, which i thought was a great yes it was a great line and that doesn't originate with me. That's an idea that like Peter Biskin discovered in his book on 70s cinema and other commentators about 70s Hollywood cinema like Robin Wood in his book, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan. They all cover that that material, too. I sort of a borrowed that question. from them. Have you ever read Robin Wood on uh, Mandingo? Ah, I feel that sounds super familiar. I'd have to okay. say yes. Because I've read yeah. a lot of Robin, Robin Wood. Wood. Did a piece uh, vindicating um, Mandingo and Drum as the most misunderstood classics um, of, of movie, and uh, I actually goodness. agree with him. I, I love those movies. Yeah. Oh, cool! Oh, well, I'll, I'll re reread that one then on your recommendation. Yeah. But uh, uh, Calm, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Um, I I think if you're if you're looking into comics, it. it Sometimes it's harder to make the case that they had a um, as wide of an effect. But one thing to factor in is that a lot of a lot of the creators today were geeky enough to be fans of um, things like The Watchmen or uh, The Killing Joke, which were the two that happened in 1986 that kind of started to create a geek slacker dynamic. Um, and to build on what Carter said. Uh, you can you can once you start buying into the idea that it's happening in this era of Spielberg and Lucas, you can definitely trace other forms that precede the era that you mentioned, um, like Quentin Tarantino. Um, you know, like uh, there's an academic who's writing about our article who kind of calls us out for not talking about Revenge of the Nerds, but but Revenge of the Nerds arguably came came out of Spielberg and Lucas too. Possibly it comes in that same era after some of their seminal work. Um, and I noticed the omission of Revenge of the Nerds myself. But you guys, the article is so dense mm -hmm. and touches on so many points. So many of them counterintuitive. Right. To me, it wasn't it wasn't a deal breaker at all. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> that's so easy. You know, that's not so easy to yeah. throw in Revenge of the Nerds yeah, like that. Mm -hmm. you know. and, yeah, and if you look at Steve Gutenberg is probably 
Uh, see, Gutenberg is is the uh, proto Seth Rogen in a way, arguably, right from that era. So yes. you can see that it's happening yeah. earlier, earlier than the That's current area, point. right? Because yeah. why? Judge, why does he Judge have Ryan, a career? Judge Ryan, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. Anthony yeah. Michael Hall. What about Anthony Michael Hall? Yeah. And John Hughesman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'm done. If you guys have any final points that you want to make that that you feel like we didn't touch on that would have been good, you know, feel free to. Uh, get the last word in. I wanted to mention Eric Lott's Love and Theft. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Uh, yes, I have. It's about blackface. Minstrels. Yeah, right. and and I just came to mind since you brought up Frank Chin's um, racist love, and since that resonated with you, I wanted to mention it. But if you if you're already, uh, it's already on your radar. That's great. Yeah, I own it, but I haven't okay. read it. But I'll move it up. To, I'll move it up on my. Uh, Great. Yeah, you can find kind of a shorter version of that. He did an article about Elvis impersonators. The title eludes me, but if you look <laughs> yeah, up Eric well, Lott and you find his piece on Elvis impersonators, you can kind of get the gist of his argument from Love and Theft in an article oh, length uh, uh, dose. Yeah. Oh, great. So I, I could put that in the show notes. Yeah, sure, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't have anything profound to add. Um, I mean, I just think this is such an interesting conversation and an important ongoing one because, indeed, toxic geek culture strikes me as a thing that's just – I mean, it, it, we may not even be seeing its peak power yet, which scares me. I, you know, I thought Gamergate surely must be the the peak, but now, now that Trump is in there – I mean, Trump's not a geek, but – this kind of uh, taking your own victimization and then then sort of turning it around into a a, a means of attacking others and, and so forth. I don't know. I it, it seems oh, to be picking up steam point. now. The geek rage is yeah. being enabled by the Trump the Trumpers. You know the Trump Trumpers. Yeah, I forgot to I forgot to I forgot to ask that. How the five years that you wrote this article, how uh, reality has either confirmed or changed any of your beliefs in the article because yeah this is a 2012 article yeah. and to me a lot of reality has kind of confirmed this article has been very prescient and and you guys actually are returning to the well right you guys are uh yeah we're we're gonna try to over the next couple of years put together something book length that would include the stuff on the geeks and mm. also some of our more recent stuff about hillbillies uh, which would take us into the horror realm. So I really appreciate that part of our conversation earlier, by the way. Um, and we'll acknowledge you and, and maybe talk to you some more about that someday. But anyway, yeah, we're we're kind of put this stuff together. Yeah, yeah. Maybe in the future. Yeah, maybe in the future we can do a JD Vance show and Hillbilly Elegy because Hillbillies, hillbillies are kind of like the new um, simulated ethnicity. They are. They are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> All right. So that's a wrap for us. Uh, I really appreciate having right. you guys here. And in the future, if you guys are up for it, I'd love to do that JD Vance um, and Hillbilly as simulated ethnicity uh, episode. Sure. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And, uh, yes. Was it Calm or Carter that uh, is the horror buff? It's Carter. I'm the horror Carter, maniac. Okay. You and I, are you on Twitter? I am. Okay, we're going to have to link up and, and continue that discussion, bro. <laughs> Please do. Find me on Twitter. Yep, I'm on there. Okay, right. I'll, uh, put, I'll put your Twitter information in the um, in the show notes. And Oh, that'd be perfectly fine, yeah, yes. Great. All right, guys. So it was real fun. Thanks a lot, and we will it talk was. soon. Thanks. 
Thank you. Be good. All right. Thank you.